can't tell you this. I remember in high school laughing at the annotated notes when the character says, I think it was in Romeo and Juliet, he goes, uh, he's making the beast with two backs. Yeah. That is <laughs> exactly what you're thinking. That's that's the rare time that I go, is that what I yep. think it is? And you're 16 years old, you go, that's exactly what that is. I'm like, all right. So back in Shakespeare's time, when you wanted to get it on, you wouldn't swipe right. You wouldn't say Netflix and chill. You'd say, hey, what do you think about making the beast with two backs? <laughs> What lingers in the mind after this version of the tragedy of Macbeth is not specific line deliveries or bravura acting moments, although the cast all acquit themselves well, but images and sounds. Isaac Butler of Slate talking about our feature review, our new movie this week, The Tragedy of Macbeth. It's in theaters and currently available on Apple Plus, which is where I saw it. Our old movie this week, I've never seen it. It's one of those movies that's part of the pop culture vernacular. I'm aware of it. I've never actually seen it. So I finally watched Fatal Attraction. That's right. That is one creepy woman. Glenn Close <laughs> getting vengeance on Michael Douglas from 1987. And our wild card, honestly, I think he's a tremendous actor. You know him, you love him from his four films with Quentin Tarantino. His name is Tim Roth. He's got a new film out called Sundown. He's also Academy Award nominated for Best Supporting Actor for Rob Roy. He was in Planet of the Apes. He was in a show on Fox, I think, called Lied me great actor that's our wild card and we'll do a review of the critics choice awards excuse me not the critics choice awards the sag nominations screen actors guild and the golden globes chris cody your first reaction to that was what well, i mean first of all i had to look i was like wait the you're reacting are you predicting on the nominee like wait the golden globes happened it happened on january 9th where was i who hosted it how like i i usually keep up i don't i might not watch every second of it but i like award shows i like watching the red carpets on e had no the, the the Golden Globes went right over my head. No clue it happened. And your reaction is not shocking at all. I'm sure a lot of people are having that reaction right now. Same as you're like, wait, when did the Golden Globes happen? So a refresher here: the Hollywood Foreign Press, which makes up the Golden Globes, it's like literally 51 people. And so a year ago, they're like, hang on a second, why is this just a bunch of old white guys? Like this isn't cool. Yeah. Like it should be more women and racially diverse. And then Tom Cruise, that noted paragon of justice, was like, <laughs> well, I'll have to return my Golden Globes if this. Oh my God, forbid! Tom Cruise <laughs> is getting involved. So this year, NBC was like, we're not going to air the Golden Globes. Big moral standard. That's like, okay. what it is. Okay. Okay, that makes sense. So the Golden Globes occurred, but with no fanfare, no televised event special, and literally very few people. Like, there's a couple people, I guess, who accepted it via Zoom, but it was more like, imagine you or I just reading a list. So best supporting actor goes to, and that's what it was. That was the Golden Globes. It's kind of like that saying, if a tree falls in the woods and no one hears it, did it actually happen? I don't think that the Golden Globes happened. If it's not on TV, if I don't have a red carpet with Ryan Seacrest telling me, interviewing people, then it just didn't exist. Unless you have secrets saying this to me, what are you wearing? Yes. No, who are you wearing? Yes. That's what it is. Yes. Who are you wearing? I'm wearing Versace. And I don't care what they're wearing, uh, but I just love that back and forth every time. Yeah. Oh, the pageantry is always great. So a quick recap on the Golden Globe, which nobody cared about and wasn't televised. Uh, as you know, they go into two separate categories. There's the best dramatic film, the best comedy or musical. No surprise, West Side Story crushed it. They win for best comedy or musical, best actress for uh, Rachel Zegler, and best supporting actress for uh, Ariana DeBose. On the dramatic side, Belfast, as you all know, was my number two best picture of the year. I'm pulling hard for it to win best picture. Did win an award, but not best mm. picture. Went for best screenplay. Good news for Kenneth Branagh. But best picture goes to Power of the Dog. A good film. I reviewed it here in Cinephile. It's not my top ten. It's not a film that I loved. But that one, Best Dramatic Film. It won Best Director. Uh, and a lot of hype there for that uh -huh. movie. There's no doubt about it. So 
That's the Golden Globes. Power of the Dog and West Side Story both came out strong. Belfast for screenplay. We'll see if the other nominees th- come forward. And by the way, Will Smith, like a heavyweight train right now. King Richard, going to be tough to stop. Go I ahead. think you should say and claim that you hosted this year's Golden Globes because no one really knows. <laughs> it's like an unspoken thing. They happened, but who ho- Adnan Verk hosted this year's Golden Globes. If I just sent out a tweet, hey, I just want to thank everybody. I had a real blast yeah. hosting the Golden Globe. How many would <laughs> fall for it and go, oh, I had no idea. That's great. Like, oh, that did a fantastic job. Oh. I wish I'd seen it. Where was it on? Was it like on Peacock or something? Like, oh, I can't I missed it this year. Oh, no problem. At least it now happens. nobody on the internet can give me shit for not watching the Golden Globes. So that brings up the other issue. We had a tweet from a guy who said, I don't know the exact tweet, but he said something effective. Hey, I really like, I, can, I will find it. It was, I like Cinephile. I like the new version of it, but this producer doesn't ever watch anything. No, It'd be no. nice to have I want to make sure. Oh, 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 oh. I want to make sure I, if we I'm, bury I'm, the guy. I got the gist of it. Oh, this producer doesn't watch enough movies. If you're going to produce a movie podcast, why don't you? Hey, internet, lay off. It's from. It's from James Tully at James Tully TV. He tweeted me, enjoy your fast-paced GM Shuffle podcast with Lombardi. Always take something from it. I don't get anywhere else. In case you're not listening, it's an excellent NFL podcast on Cadence 13. However, on Cinephile, why doesn't your co-host seemingly do any show prep? Watch a single movie. Wouldn't fly in my industry. Is this on purpose? The first response was CJ Atchell. You clearly don't get the show, James. (laughs) I'm not a co-host. First off, I'm a producer. I could watch more movies. This is fair criticism. I'm being a little defensive, (laughs) but I need to speak for the everyman here. Uh, We get a lot of downloads on this podcast, a lot of people, and I guarantee you a a good percentage of them have maybe not seen every movie that we're reviewing. So I'm bringing Mm -hmm. the energy of someone who hasn't seen the movie. I want to ask this question about a movie I haven't seen. Hey, Adnan, let me press you on this because I'm bringing a different perspective, sir. You, Mr. Tully, you back off. You let me do my job. I am over this. I'm I'm very defensive now. I start to get really high pitched when I'm defensive. I'll I'll try to be better, Mr. Tully. I'll try to watch more movies, but just lay off. All right. To Cody's point, he's not here as a fellow film critic. This is not Siskel and Ebert. Yeah. This is not even uh, Siskel and Samson. Yeah. It's Verk's <laughs> podcast. Cody is a producer who is chiming in, who's offering thoughts. As you said, I don't. I've reviewed eight new movies in the last two right. weeks. I don't expect people to watch eight right. movies every week. So they're going, "Hey, I haven't seen it. What can you tell me about it?" And then you go from I there. I saw the like tender bar. Was, I saw the tender yeah. bar. <laughs> <laughs> Too defensive? How was that? Let's do it again. Take four. No, no, I think, I think James Tully is going to re- listen to this podcast, <laughs> and he is definitely going to respond, which is what we're hoping you for. Tully. Lots of engagement, as always. You, you can follow Tully. us on Twitter. Cinephile pod. <laughs> yeah, so that's what happened to the Golden anyway. Globes. As far as the SAG Awards are concerned, this is another, obviously, very important category because it's all about the Screen Actors Guild. And if you don't follow it, well, why do I care? Well, the Screen Actors, quite simply, they're the ones that have more juice than anybody when it comes to those acting nominations. When you want to predict in your Oscar pool, hey, what's going to win Best Actor? Well, go check the Screen Actors Guild Awards. Don't check the Golden Globes. This is the one that's more a predictor of success. Wild and unpredictable, the two words to describe it. So House of Gucci, which got mixed reviews, did great. Three nominations. Power of the Dog, also doing well. Big awards pushed from Netflix, but did not get a Best Ensemble nomination. So, you know, Best Actor, Actress, Supporting Actress, Supporting Actress. Best Ensemble is like saying Best Cast. That's like Best Picture. So that's a very, very important category. These are the nominees for Best Ensemble, i.e. Best Cast. House of Gucci, Belfast, which I'm pushing hard for. Coda, which I call disappointing, but I appreciate the fact it does feature a lot of deaf actors. It was very well acted. Don't Look Up, Mixed reviews, mm-hmm. uh, obviously that film from our friend Adam McKay, and King Richard, where Will Smith is obviously the favorite to win Best Actor. So it's interesting what got nominated. TV-wise, as you all know, I don't watch a ton of TV, but 
not a surprise. Succession was nominated. Ted Lasso was nominated. The Water Cooler, Squid Game, Good Little Handmaid's Tale, Yellowstone, The Kaminsky Method, Only Murders in the Building, which uh, Cody and I appreciate. Mm-hmm. Martin Short, Steve Martin, so it's great. Uh, as far as the stars, though, like I said, Jeremy Strong's up for it. Jennifer Aniston, Lady Gaga, Olivia Coleman, Will Smith. But there are some surprises. The biggest shock is this. The favorite to win Best Actress this year at the Academy Awards and a film that I did like, Ben Lyons loved it. Kristen Stewart from Twilight, nominated for Princess Diana and Spencer Golden Globe, not nominated by the SAGs. A shocking omission for the Screen Actors Guild. Also, if you saw King Richard, you know it's not just Will Smith. It's also Anjanou Ellis. Yeah. She's playing Venus in the movie. She's excellent. She was snubbed. And Belfast, Jamie Dornan, he plays the father. He was wait, you mean, now, a couple wait of did you say the lady that played Will Smith's wife? Excuse me, yeah, Will Smith's You said Smith's Venus. Wife, is her name Venus, too? Oh, I said Venus. Yeah, yeah. I screwed up. No, no, Oracine. Okay. Oracine is, I believe. Yeah. That's right. Thank good catch. Yeah, so Anjanou Ellis, Jamie Dornan, Kristen Stewart, among the nominations that were snubbed. Bradley Cooper, surprisingly nominated for Licorice Pizza. I think he's in the movie, I'm not kidding, 10 minutes. Plays a coked-out producer named John Peters. That's a ridiculous nomination, and I like him. How uh, often, how not often, how often does that happen with uh, nominations and these type of things, where it's like, man, are they just doing the thing where Bradley Cooper is a guy that's been like nominated? Like, Do they just kind of fall back on, like, he's a guy we've nominated a lot, so let's nominate him here kind of thing? I would say it happens every year at least once or twice. Right. So if there's 20 nominees, five per category, you say, okay, 12 are based on merit, four are a popularity contest, two are inexplicable. Yeah. <laughs> this is the one that you go, this is inexplicable. Okay, they just like Bradley Cooper, he's got some friends yeah. that will make it work. Uh, but those are the nominations, they will, they will be televised for the record. Uh, unlike the Golden Globe, which came and went, which I did a great job hosting, <laughs> you can actually watch the SAG Awards February 27th on TNT and TBS, that's at eight o'clock Eastern. I don't know why I'm promoting it, like if the SAGs have anything to do with us, but if you want to catch the Screen Actors Guild Awards, make sure you watch it. Hey, maybe one day I'll be working for uh, TNT or TBS. That's your recaps there. <laughs> All right, Chris, where are you at when it comes to Shakespeare? Uh, hey, Mr. Tully, I haven't seen this one either. Okay, what are you going to do about it? Nothing. I'm sorry, I'm still heated about this Tully thing. But if I said to you, like, you know, uh, we're just having I a, remember you know, being bar- in high barroom school. conversation. I said to you, hey, Cody, when's the last time you read some this Shakespeare? Will Would not, you look at me like I had three This heads? will not surprise anybody. I remember being in English class in high school and us like reading like as a class and I literally did not understand any of it. We would get done with like a chapter and I would be like, I have no clue what happened there. I just don't get the way they talk. Not a big Shakespeare guy over here. In defense of you, I really wanted to watch this movie in the theaters. But I couldn't rationalize it with, you know, the fact that I've got four kids and all these jobs. I'm like, you know, let me just wait till Apple Plus, yeah. January 14th. Not a big deal. I went and saw West Side Story, which I really wanted to see on the big screen. I saw Licorice Pizza because I love P.T. Anderson. I saw Nightmare Alley. Macbeth, I'm like, you know what, dude? I'll just watch on Apple Plus. I have all these streaming services. I think we're good. And thank God I did. Because to Chris's point, if I watch this in the theater, I would have no idea what's going on. <laughs> I mean, maybe 20%. I'm like, all right, Macbeth looks kind of pissed off. Yeah. Here. When you're watching at home, though, Props to the subtitles. The subtitles are there. I would pause once in a while and go, okay, what exactly is Lady Macbeth saying? Like, this is very ornate yes. English language from 500 years ago. Like, you get the essence, but what does it actually mean? You go, okay, I kind of understand it a little bit. So this is a rare win for watching was, on the small screen with subtitles. I was actually just about to say, what's the movie? Because there are some movies you're like, I got to see that on the big screen. What are the movies yeah. that you're like, no, I want to see that on the small screen? And it might be ones where you need to read the dialogue because it's yeah. just a lot of confusing stuff. Yeah, I would say anything with like British acts, like Cockney accents, like a Guy Ritchie film, like Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels. People love it. I go, try watching that in the theater. You have no idea what these guys are yeah. saying. Like Snatch, good luck. You're going to watch it with the subtitles. You'll appreciate it more. Oh, I get all the humor of it. Great. Anything with like a thick Irish brogue. Yeah. 
I'm always like, you know what? My left foot, I'll watch on the small screen. That's the way uh-huh. to go. But of course, the movies you'd rather watch on the big screen, yeah. any action movie, yeah. you know, Mad Max, Fury Road, stuff like that. Uh, anyways, props to Apple Plus for putting it on the small screen and props to the subtitles, which is a rare win because normally I wouldn't be saying that. I like to just watch the film as it is. Here's the good news, though. The Tragedy of Macbeth is a fantastic movie. It is a rare split in the legendary career of the Coen brothers. Highly influential filmmaking brothers Joel and Ethan. For those who don't know, they write the script together, Ethan produces it, and then Joel directs. Although, as they always say, listen, there's a lot of overlap. It's not like one guy does one. It's two brothers working together. However, they are both responsible for some of the most inspired and riveting films in the last 30 years. Fargo, The Man Who Wasn't There, No Country for Old Men, The Big Lebowski, the list goes on and on. This time, though, Joel goeth alone directing. Ethan Cohn is not involved. It is Joel directing the tragedy of Macbeth in theaters on Apple+. Plus. The film is beautiful to behold. Notably, the art director, Stefan Duchamp, and cinematographer, Bruno Del Bonnell. And it is stark, minimalist, and rooted in the aesthetics of German expressionism. Black and white, unusual off-kilter shot composition, especially those overhead shots, and a plethora of smoke and shadows. Earlier Macbeth on screen, 1948 from Orson Welles, 1971 via Roman Polanski, which was the first movie he made after the Manson family murdered his wife. I haven't seen either of those films, so I can't compare them. Just for perspective, that has been earlier Macbeths. However, something that you and I will both appreciate, the great show Barry on HBO, mm-hmm. Stephen Root, great actor, he shows up in the tragedy of Macbeth. And as often happens in Shakespeare, you need to have a little bit of comedy. So he shows up as a comedy, comedic character, name is Porter. And at one point he says, this place is too cold for hell. Catherine Hunter also, she plays all three of the Weird Sisters. In case you haven't seen Macbeth, the Weird Sisters are about as weird as it gets. She contorts her body and has a ghastly face that will give you nightmares for days. But I'm burying the lead here. Why do you want to watch the tragedy Macbeth? It's because it's peak Denzel Washington. Malcolm X, The Hurricane, Fences, Training Day, and now a Shakespearean tragic figure befitting his outsized talent. Yet he's superbly subtle. In those films I just mentioned, if I mentioned Denzel Training Day, you're picturing him saying, King Kong ain't got nothing on me. And yet in Macbeth, he is quietly stalking his prey. He is played by the issue, the jealousy, the distrust, the fact he wants to kill Duncan, played by Brendan Gleeson. And of course, he's being driven by his wicked wife, Lady Macbeth, played by Frances McDormand. A great actress who I will admit, I did not think was perfect for the role. Having said that, Denzel makes artistry of Shakespeare's words, signified by his reading of the most famous line of the entire play which is, it is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. If I asked you most actors, they would rip into that line. It is a tale told by an idiot. Denzel could not be quieter in his line reading. It is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. And yet this film is not anything but idiotic. It is a fantastic film. If I had seen this prior to last week, it would have cracked my top 10 films of the year. Just for purity's sake, I would have had it at number eight. I would have bumped Nobody to number nine. I would have bumped Encounter to 10. Many Saints of Newark would not have made my top 10. That's how much I like this film, The Tragedy Macbeth, Three and a Half Maple Leafs. Even if you're not into Shakespeare, Chris Cody, or Iambic Pentameter, this is an excellent film. No, I'm definitely interested in it, and Denzel will get me interested, so I would definitely check it out. I was just thinking that whole time, though, about what the conversation was like between Joel and Ethan Cohen of like, we've worked together our entire lives. And I actually, while you were talking there, I was like, let me look this up, get a little info. You, uh, Joel Cohen married to Francis McDormand. Mm-hmm. Like, so do you think there's something going on there where it's like, hey, Ethan, I want to make a movie with my wife here. Like, I just want this to be a, like, I'm just like, what was that conversation like? Did Ethan not want to be part of this project? Like, did he reject it? Like, Joel's like, let's do our normal thing. And Ethan's like, no, I don't want any part of this. Or was Joel like, Ethan, I love you. We'll make more together. But this one I want to do with my, I'm just like interested in this dynamic and yeah. how this conversation went down. 
It's an excellent question. Those guys rarely do publicity. Like, I wish Joel Cohn was on uh, Colbert yeah. discussing this right now, but you're right. They rarely say anything. I'll look it up. Him being married to Francis throws a little thing in there like, is this, like, do Francis and Ethan? I'm being, I'm, I'm recklessly speculating right now. Do they not get along? And it's like... <laughs> because they've, they've made other films with Francis McDormand. Of course, okay. Fargo, she's the star oh, yeah, of the film. Like, they've, okay. made, they've made other films. It's not like he's like, hey, dude, we've been having a good run. For the first time, I want to bring in my wife, Ethan's like, under no circumstances. He's worked with Freddie. I'll allow it. It passes my sniff test. I'm just saying, I'm on to you, Cohen brothers. I want to know how this happened. Chris is right about that. I'm curious. You guys work together. You've made 20, 25 movies. You worked together for 30 years. What is it years? about this movie and, that was like, this right. one, I'm good. Like <laughs> Shakespeare, I'm drawing a line of the sand. Like you said, is it Joel going, dude, I don't think you know Shakespeare. Yeah. You know, he's smart of me. I'm going to do it. Or Ethan goes, Shakespeare, like how highbrow do you think you are? You don't what know if Ethan's just like, yo, we've made a lot of money in this game. I just want two years yeah. off. I'm going to the Bahamas. <laughs> Did Ethan Cohn refuse to work in the tragic Macbeth because he wanted to go to the Bahamas? We need to get to the bottom of this. We'll find out. Was that was that uh, contribution all right for you, Tully? Huh? Was that no, okay? You're, you're taking it too personally, I mean... Tully. I want to mention to you my favorite actor, Al Pacino. He adores Shakespeare. So if you're a fan of Shakespeare, you should watch Looking for Richard, 1996 documentary, which Al made, which is amazing. It's about an actor, meaning Al Pacino. He's trying to stage Richard III, and he's doing it with a bunch of different actors. At the time, good friend of his, Kevin Spacey, which does not look good in retrospect, and a few of his other friends as well. And you see Al dressing up like as a king, and you know he's trying the crown on, he's doing certain scenes, but he's also being Al Pacino, which means he's a documentarian. He's on the streets asking people, do you like Shakespeare? What do you like about Shakespeare? Do you not like Shakespeare? It's interesting, a guy who's known as playing such a great villain, Scarface, the Godfather, what a surprise. Pacino's favorite Shakespeare, Richard III, which is about one of the great bad guys ever in literature. He's deformed, and of course he's you know, scheming and malevolent. It's a really great film if you haven't seen it. Pacino's Looking for Richard documentary, which brings me to the Mount Rushmore of Shakespeare. This is not movie related. This is just the books that I've read. I love Henry IV because Falstaff is so good. This is how good a writer Jack McCallum is. He was the great NBA writer for Sports Illustrated for years. Jack McCallum once in a profile of Shaquille O'Neal referred to Shaq as a modern day Falstaff. I remember reading this and I almost fell off my chair. I mean, I'm in high school at the time, so I'm reading Henry IV. When I met Jack McCallum years ago, I was on the NBA beat in Toronto. I went up to him and I saw the name tag All-Star Game in Denver. And I go, Jack McCallum, SI. Okay. I'm like, I just want to tell you, I love that Shaquille O'Neal Falstaff reference. And he's like, oh, you know, that's what you get for being an English major. I go, this guy's unbelievable. Like, how many other sports writers are dropping in a Falstaff <laughs> reference? But to this day, Jack McCallum, who has covered the Dream Team, who has profiled Jordan, Magic, you name it, I'll never forget the fact he included Falstaff when discussing Shaquille O'Neal. In case you're curious, Falstaff likes Shaq. Larger than life, big guy, loud, that kind of thing. Othello I love. I mean, insecure guy. Who doesn't love an insecure guy being driven to you know, bouts of jealousy? Jealousy. Iago whispering in his ear. Speaking of movies, Kenneth Branagh was great as Iago in uh, Lawrence Fishburne played Othello. Macbeth, as I just mentioned, and Richard III, the aforementioned. Merchant of Venice is pretty good. Pacino actually did Merchant of Venice. He played Shylock. I just find it a little bit anti-Semitic. Some of the way that they characterize a Jewish character, I find it a little bit offensive, to be honest with you. But I do like Merchant of Venice as far as the overall theme. And as I said, Pacino plays Shylock great. And back to Chris's original point, whenever you understand what they're saying, I can't tell you this. I remember in high school laughing at the annotated notes when the character says, I think it was in Romeo and Juliet. He goes, uh, he's making the beast with two backs. Yeah. That is exactly what you're thinking. That's that's the rare time that I go, is that what I yep. think it is? And you're 16 years old. You go, that's exactly what that is. I'm like, all right. So back in Shakespeare's time, when you wanted to get it on, you wouldn't swipe right. You wouldn't say Netflix and chill. You'd say, hey, what do you think about making the beast with two backs? <laughs>
On that note, we move to the old. Speaking of the beast with two backs, how about Michael Douglas? This guy is Hollywood royalty. His dad is Kirk Douglas, great actor, obviously, Spartacus. He's an excellent producer. He produced One Floor of the Cuckoo's Nest, uh, which famously won Best Picture. Jack Nicholson won Best Actor. But he loves playing characters in thrillers who are oversexed men in trouble with dangerous women. You know what I'm talking about. Basic Instinct, of course, Sharon Stone, Disclosure, Demi Moore, and perhaps, in some ways most famously, especially in the 80s, Fatal Attraction, which came out before he did Wall Street for which he won the Best Actor Academy Award. This is a 1987 film directed by Adrian Lin, and it's real straightforward. It's about a guy having an affair, beautiful woman he's married to, Ann Archer. He, he fools around with Glenn Close, who I don't want to be a total jerk here, but I wouldn't describe her as a sex bot. She's not exactly, you know, Sharon Stone or Demi Moore, but whatever, I guess for that time, Glenn Close is where it was at. And she is just ferocious in this movie. I know Chris Cody is hopelessly devoted to his wife. He would never think of stepping out on her. But anybody out there who has ever done this, be wary of a woman like Glenn Close. He sleeps with her and then tries to cut it off. And she, as she says to him, I'm not going to be ignored. And so what happens with a woman, if I can't have him, I'm going to kill him. And at one point, she sends an audio cassette to him. This is the 80s. And he's horrified. He's like, what is this woman doing? She won't leave me alone. She claims that she's pregnant with his child. And in a, an act of real villainy, I thought the character would say, all right, I'll pay you off. Let's move on. Or let's have a paternity test. I don't believe you. He goes, that's your problem. I want nothing to do with this. I'm like, oh, my God. The guy just impregnated a woman. Yeah. I, maybe he reads through her BS that he knows she's lying, which, of course, she is. Yeah. But he's like, oh, whatever. Good. You want to have this kid? That's your problem. She later ends up sending him audio cassettes. So like, you're scared of me, aren't you? I know you're scared oh, of me. I know where you live. I'm going to tell your wife. And at one point, she goes, you probably even don't, like, don't even like girls. You effing flaming gay slur. I'm like, oh, my God. This movie from 1987, very politically incorrect <laughs> now. Uh, just to spoil it, because, you know, what the hell? It is 1987. Yeah. If you don't want to listen to this anymore, go ahead and watch something else. But in case you're curious how Fatal Attraction ends, the last scene, Ann Archer is running a bath. That's Michael Douglas's wife. Glenn Close literally walks in, and she's like, oh, she starts threatening her. My, my husband's told me about you, and blah, blah, blah. Gets a knife. Tries to stab her five times. Incredibly, somehow Ann Archer stayed alive. Chris, if I was two feet away from you, and you tried five stabbing motions, I would like to think at least two yeah. or three would be able to get mm -hmm. me. Even if I had incredible Matrix-like dexterity. She, but anyway, she's fine. Inefficient stabber? Inefficient stabber <laughs> is how I would describe Glenn Close in this film. Terrific performance, inefficient stabber. Michael Douglas, who's downstairs with a dog and working in the fireplace, eventually realizes, wait, I think that's my wife screaming. He runs upstairs. He comes in like commando. He turns the corner, just spears her. Like he literally tackles Glenn Close. She gets a couple knife wounds in him, which is good, then takes her in the cub, just drowns her face. I'm like, man. This type of violence against women, I don't think this is flying tonight. But hey, 1987, she's a psychotic woman. What else could I do? It does make me think of, to bring it back to Shakespeare, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. If you are ever <laughs> thinking about having an affair, Fatal Attraction is the movie to watch. Like, you know what? Maybe not a good idea, because there might be a crazy woman out there who will destroy my life. And Glenn Close, as I said, not exactly fetching, but it is a hell of a performance. And it's something that in pop culture you will say. If someone says to you, hey, dude, watch out. This feels like Fatal Attraction. You know what that means. That means there's a woman who is not going to be appreciate being pushed aside. Chris, have you ever seen Fatal Attraction or heard about Fatal Attraction? I've heard of it, yeah. I'm just like you, other than you saw it recently. I, I've known that it's like a popular, famous old movie. Never seen it. Right. But it was released in 1987 on September 11th. What you think of that, Tully? That's a little nugget oh, wow. for this thing, huh? That's good research in a Chris Cody. Actually released on 9-11. Well, I was like, the reason I looked it up is because I was born in 87. So I was thinking, wouldn't it be funny if it was released on my birthday? But I looked it up September 11th, huh? Okay. What you got, Tully? Tell you what, Tully, my man, Chris <laughs> Cody, producer slash researcher here. I just dunked on him with a release date.
That's what I that's what I did there. So you're going next level though. You're using all your tricks. Joe Livingstone of the New Republic on the tragedy of Macbeth. Joel Cohn has made his Macbeths into real adults who seem to drag real responsibilities behind them. Rohan Nahar of the Indian Express. It is a movie defined by its emptiness, the vacancy of its brutalist hallways, and the desolation of its deliberately artificial landscape. It's a good point. You know, normally a film like this, you'd pick like the last duel. It's gonna be shot in Scotland, big castle. No. Tragic Macbeth, all shot in sound stages. Like they just, it looks like they just shot it like out of a warehouse in LA. Denzel drove to work, will knock it out. And it's a really interesting way to make a film. Artificial landscapes, as he said, rather than shooting it on location. Interesting choice by Joel Cohn. Couple reviews here from Fatal Attraction. Jay Boyer of Orlando Sentinel. Under the direction of Adrian Lynn, most of the pictures' situations seem like randomly chosen placeholders, flat events that just fill time until the final bizarre confrontation. I like that he refers to it as such. Jonathan Rosenbaum, a Chicago reader, while billed as a romance and a thriller, the film strictly qualifies as neither, appealing to our prurience, guilt, hatred, and dread. And lastly, Daniel Soulsman of Soulsy at the Movies, fatal attraction may remain an influence on the genre, but something could be said about the depiction of mental health in the film. It is not a film that has aged well. That is a good point there. All right, that's your new, that's your old. It's time to get to the wild card. My man, Tim Roth. It's a pleasure to bring in the great Tim Roth. He's been a wonderful actor for a long time. The Cook, the Thief, his wife and her lover, Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction, The Hateful Eight, won a BAFTA award for Rob Roy. And, of course, that great film, The War Zone, which he directed. He has a new film called Sundown, which he's collaborating with Michelle Franco again. Tim, I thought the film was excellent. I love the fact it was nice and tight, 77 minutes, premiered at the Venice Film Festival, did very well. It's going to be in theaters January 28th. How would you describe it to people? Because when I said it to my wife, I said... It's about male ennui. It's about existential despair. It's about a man on a journey. How would you describe it to someone? That's good. I mean, I I, I haven't seen it yet because I'm hoping I'm hoping to see it in a you know in a in the right environment, which is um, to see it in a in a auditorium, you know, in a cinema with a bunch of strangers sneaking in the back and, and watching a film. So that's what it was made for. So I'm kind of holding off, hoping for a post-pandemic-ish type of um, thing to happen that's not festival-based. Um, but um, it sounds to me, and especially you know, from what you've said and then from what people have reported back to me, like um, family and so on who've seen it, and like my son worked on it. Um, and so, you know, people are seeing a different film when it's sitting next to each other in the same place, looking at the screen and seeing a very different story. So I wouldn't do any spoilers on it. What I would say is that when we worked together on it uh, and in a similar way, but not quite the same, uh, when we worked on it together, me and Misha, it, it was, first of all, we, the idea of a silent movie was something in the back of our minds, very much so, very different from how films are now, which are very plot heavy, covered in music, you know, here's the story, I'm telling you what to think type of thing. Put that to the side. So here we go. How do we, what is the journey that this guy goes on, this, this group of characters goes on, go on together or, or separately? And we came up with an idea, which I, again, I'm not going to, I have to be careful because, you know, whatever else, but a journey a lot of it was about class disparity. He, the, it began with he came to me uh, saying, "I want to do some. Uh, uh, I want to do a story about someone who is going through a, a particular s- section of his life, 
who comes from incredible wealth and finds himself in a place where he doesn't belong, where, you know, so he comes from extreme privilege and into somewhere of abject poverty, but also a place that has um, a history of glamour and a history of, of wealth and corruption, but also, so, so you saw, and, you, and, and, and this is a, Acapulco I'm talking about particularly, um, that was a place where the director used to go on holiday with his family when he was a little kid. And it had this, has this extraordinary history of glamour and corruption and disparity as far as um, class is concerned. So what if you take a man from the top of that, very, very top of that, and put him at the very bottom of that and let him have and go about his business and, and journey through that, whatever that particular journey is? What about if we shoot that? I was like, okay. And so we, so then we had to come up with um, a, a, a backstory that would f- would fit into that kind of notion, um, and so we started that process. <laughs> I love the origin of it. I mean, your performance is terrific because the character is very repressed. He doesn't emote much. Again, I know you haven't seen it yet, but there's a couple of scenes yeah. where Charlotte Gainsbourg confronts him, and your character just doesn't react. And I started laughing the one scene because yeah. at one point your character says, you want to get dinner? And she's like, what? Like, what, what is wrong with you? Like, yeah. did, did you see the humor <laughs> in the character when you were playing him? Because to me, it's not strictly a dramatic film. There's some humor there, too. Well, that's, I think that's, yeah, that's a good case in point because, I, of course, I didn't know that was in the film. So that's good. So, yeah, conversations have two sides. This is an extreme example of that. But, yeah, it, you know, it's like, yeah, you want to get some lunch? You know, why would you say that? Because that's what's on my mind, you know. Um, but given the circumstances, given, the, given the, what she has on her mind, you know, when you bring those two things together, it's interesting to see how that spins out or in out of control or in control. It's very interesting. I'm glad that made it, and I find that funny. But then you can sit back and go, "Oh shit, that's not funny if it happened to me." Oh my god! And off you go. Yeah, it's funny. Some actors used to talk about choosing to shoot movies because they could go to you know Italy for a month. And I was like, if I'm Tim Roth, I get the script. I'm like, I don't know if you've ever shot a film in warmer weather or had your shirt off for more of a movie or drank more beer during the course of a movie. <laughs> yeah, you got to do. And also, you have to put vanity aside. You know, you know, and, and go there because that's what what he is human. You know, so it's not six pack stuff and you know, twelve hours in the gym every morning or whatever it is. It's not that. It's like, okay, be human and just forget about it, you know, and I like that kind of stuff too. Um, And it's difficult to film there because security-wise, very difficult, you know, all of that stuff. But we did it. We did it. They pulled it off. It's important shooting there on location. You get that sense of what Mexico is about. It's beautifully shot. I can't wait till you see the film. Sundown is available in theaters uh, January 28th. It's a terrific film. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about your career, if that's okay. Tarantino, sure. you, will, you will always be linked with, of course, Reservoir Dogs and Four Rooms and Pulp Fiction and The Hateful Eight. I was so happy. You know, you got back with the gang and Matt, Michael Madsen and everybody else in The Hateful Eight. But tell yeah. me about Reservoir Dogs. Did you have any sense, Tim, you're making this movie, it would become one of the best, most influential films of the 1990s? No, we didn't think of it that way. I, I remember I come to, I just arrived in LA, you know, and, I, and they said, you got to stay, you get an agent. I was like, all right, got one. Um, and I, you know, I come and, and I, I was so out of out of my world. I mean, it's so so different from what I what I knew. Um, 
And I was, I, I think what originally brought me here was uh, Vincent and Theo, the, the film I did with Altman. And so I'm impressed. So I got, I got myself uh, an agent and I said, all right, I'll give it, I'll give it two, three months. And I'm, I've got a bugger off. And so I was sitting in this apartment in West Hollywood, <laughs> a horrible place. And scripts were arriving, you know, I said, like, okay. So I started reading them. Most of them I didn't want to do. Oh my God. And then this one, I opened it up and there it was. And on the cover, it had look at, what was it? It was look at blonde or pink. And what, what does that even mean? And so I opened it up. I was like, okay, well, I don't know what that meant. And started reading it. Within 20 pages, I, I reached for the phone. And it was pre-cell phones, by the way. I reached for the phone. I was like, I, I want to do this. I want to do this so badly. And we shut that whole thing in five weeks. Yeah, and Reservoir Dogs, you were so great because Mr. You know, there's a bunch of thieves and criminals, but Mr. Orange is the good guy. That's the guy who's yeah. the undercover agent. So I was like, guy. all right, Roth is playing the good guy. Who's the bad guy? Who's the bad guy? I don't know. You know, it's it's uh, yeah. I just I love the idea of an English guy trying to play an American who. So that's one level of deceit, and he's playing an American, playing an uh, English guy being an American playing uh, a cop who's playing a robber. I just thought, how much bullshit layers can you come up with? I like that, you know, and it was and on a shoestring and, you know, but beautiful dialogue and beautiful script and it was excellent. Yeah. yeah, I loved it. I'm sure it's been a long time since you've seen it, but the scene in the car where Chris Penn's telling the story and Kaitel's in the front oh, yeah. and you and Bashemi are in the back and the looks that you're giving to Bashemi back and forth are so good. And he's like, was the guy all oh, pissed yeah. off? He's like, how would you feel if you, every time you did a piss, you're going to do a handstand? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> this is so good. And then you've got, of course, then you've got you've got Steve right. sitting there. Yeah. Well, that, that's I mean, the thing. So Quentin sent it to you, Pink, and you obviously you're Mr. Orange. So he <laughs> thought you might be Mr. Pink. I think that was the agent who'd read okay. it and those suggestions on the cover. Gotcha. And but when I when I looked at it, I was like, Orange, whoa, you know, what a what a, a all the, the I like the levels of deceit that were real and then fictional. I love the inter interaction of those. I love the humor yeah. of that and I love the drama of the war zone. The film that you directed, it was an incredible mm -hmm. film, Tim. I'm from Toronto. So I saw it at the Toronto Film Festival, and I believe somebody there okay. either passed out of the screening or had to leave the screening at one point because it's such Amen. an intense film. Uh, for those who have not seen it, it's about incest and sexual abuse. Tim has spoken about the fact that, unfortunately, he was victimized by his grandfather. But that movie, uh, that's the first time I ever saw Ray Winstone in a film. I've never seen incest depicted in a film like that. I thought it was a courageous film. I, I'm sure it was tough to make, but I'm amazed you were able to make it. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I made it. I mean, I don't know if I'd ever direct again. I thought about it. I enjoyed that experience. I was basically I directed because uh, so many directors I'd worked with, I'd interfered in their process. So they'd just <laughs> gone, I'll make your own. So they go, I'll go. But um, now I don't know. I do have two scripts that are ready to go and they're very, very different and very interesting. But and maybe I will trip over something down the line. But no, I, I don't know. I think I'm done. I, I I feel that I'm done, but I never I never count anything out. So it is something that I would I'm 90% sure it'll never happen again, but an interesting, I'll keep, I'll keep my, just slightly open, see it's, how it it's goes. It's interesting because a fellow Brit, Gary Oldman, he did Nail by Mouth, which is again, a very yeah, Gary, intense yeah. film. It's about abuse. And I mean, both you guys have directed yeah. great films, but you haven't done many of them again. That's it. I mean, maybe with Gary, it's the same. Maybe it's just finished, you know, and God knows what happens in life and you just carry on. So yeah, maybe Gary's done too. Mary's, that was, oh, God, Kathy Burke was so yes. good in that movie. Yeah. Oh, God, she's such a good actor. I think she's retired. Yeah, she's retired. I think she's retired.
Nailed by mouth. Yeah. You're right. That's an intense movie. Whew. Uh, yeah. I got to ask you about Rob Roy. What a great movie. BAFTA Award, Best Supporting Actor. You got nominated for an Academy Award. <laughs> Nothing like a good swashbuckler. You and Liam Neeson together. Tell me about Rob Roy. You were great in that movie. Well, I, I, it, it was the first proper page, payday I'd ever had, you know, and I was like, <laughs> bloody hell. All right. So, so, you know, I went, rehearsed, did a lot of sword work rehearsal months of it. And then we started rehearsing, you know, or shooting the film. I, I did, and it, I, you know, it's a true story. Um, I thought I was going to get fired because of my performance. I thought when the studio guys arrived and saw the, the stuff that I was doing, which was so over the top, you know, until the wig comes off. Um, so, so over the top that um, I thought they were going to replace me. I really, really, in fact, to the point where I was calling my agent saying, you better find me a job because I think I'm going to be out of work pretty quick. <laughs> and, uh, and then it all went a different way, you know, but yeah, we, we, yeah, it was difficult because of the work that I had to do, but I wasn't carrying the film. Liam was carrying this whole thing. And I was just, coming in there and dancing around in a wow. in posh well, One rock. might say he was carrying it, but I think you stole the film. So uh, we got one <laughs> minute left. My, my, I've got four boys. I know you have three boys. One of my kids is big into gorillas right now. He's five years old, Shaz. Oh, yeah. So he watches anything with, like, monkeys like that. So I showed him Planet of the Apes, which, of course, you're unbelievable in. Tell me about the story I worked with Tim Burton. You were great in that. Yeah, I mean, it was difficult because, again, I loved doing the movement stuff. It was such fun. I mean, I went, we went, we had ape classes. It was terrific. And, um, but there's, you can see the division in the film and I made it again for my kids just to embarrass them at school. And so, but you can see the division because with my character, I was very fortunate with it. He, they let me go dark. Tim really wanted to go there, but the studios were like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I mean, some of the ideas that we came up with were brutal revenge on, on of the apes on humans you know so so brutal and we, we got shot but we managed to sneak some stuff in there you know as best we could you snuck in lots what? of great stuff uh tim roth yeah. is a wonderful actor make sure you check out his new film it is called sundown it is beautifully shot it is probing it's dark and it's also in some ways got some great humor check it out it's called sundown in theaters january 20th tim i'm a huge fan can't thank you enough thank you thanks very much Well, thanks so much to Tim Roth. Fascinating guy. I like the fact he made the point about, you know, as I said to him, you spend almost all this film with your shirt off. And he said, this is no time for vanity. Like, I couldn't go get a six-pack because I'm supposed to be playing an average guy. Not schlubby, to be clear. Tim Roth does not look fat in the movie. He just looks like a, a normal English guy who's 60 years old, married with a few kids. Yeah. But I'm sure most actors, Chris, would go, wait, wait, I'm taking my shirt yeah. off. I gotta go, Hugh Jackman here. I gotta get a six. I let's, let's go. Just to make this about me, I'm 34 years old. I've just now, in the last two years, have gotten to the point where I don't give a shit and I'll take my shirt off. I lived my entire high school. I was a little like you know, shirt I wasn't off. skinny, but I was the guy. Yeah. I was that kid in high school that would have everyone would be in the pool and I would be in the pool with my shirt because I was very insecure yeah. about like yeah. a little too pale, still... a little flabby. Yeah. Yeah. My issue is not the palace. My skin tone is better than yours, yeah. at least darker than yours. I should say. I don't know if it's better. I don't make that clear, but flabby. And yeah. now, like, when you get in your forties, you're kind of like this. Just it's not. A yeah, good I'll just keep my I've shirt. I've kind of gotten okay. to the point now where I, I'm, I'm comfortable with it. Like I'll, I'll take my shirt off now. So if everyone out there worried about me, I will now take my shirt off in public. 
But here's my thing, right? You're going to get knocked for keeping your shirt on. But I will take that abuse rather than having my shirt off, and there'll be abuse to my face and behind my back. Yeah. Like, after going to go, dude, you see, I didn't have the shirt off. He looks But horrible. I think I, I do feel in hindsight, as a guy now that often has his shirt off, I, I think I was overthinking it. I don't think people give a shit about us. Like, we could have just taken our shirts off, and no one would have, like, we just would have been people with our shirts yeah. off. Like, I think me and you were overthinking it in hindsight. I wish I would have taken my shirt off more as a high school kid, actually. <laughs> I'm serious. I look back on that. I'm like, you were overthinking it. Just next time, take your shirt off. No one gives a shit. On the one part of it, too, I will agree with you. People are very self-absorbed. You always yeah. worry, what are they thinking about me? Yeah. They're just thinking about themselves. Yeah. They couldn't care less about you, so don't worry about it. And I will say, though, I'm still scarred by shirts and skins as a kid. Oh, like, what a horrible that idea. Was like, that was my nightmare. That was my nightmare. I wouldn't play. I would I would have a reason to quit if I got put, picked on the, the skins team. Um, thousand percent. Nothing like, is oh, I'll good. Tell the coach, like, I'll bribe you. Like, I'm not gonna nothing play. is good, though, as getting picked on that shirts team. You're like, oof. Thank God. Yeah. Thank God. Definitely dodge a bullet. <laughs> Interesting way to wrap up here, Cinephile, with me and Chris's body issues. Coming up next week, a guy who's always been in great shape. We will talk with Zachary Levy. He's in a film called American Underdog. Came out in late December. It's about the Kurt Warner story. I promise one of my kids I go take him to see it. So we're in the midst of the NFL playoffs. Next week on Cinephile, American Underdog, the Kurt Warner story, plus special guests on the way. Uh, there's an excellent new documentary on Showtime called We Need to Talk About Cosby. I'm going to talk about to W. Kamau Bell. He is the director of the film. It's four parts. It's on Showtime. Four hours in length. I'm halfway through it. So hopefully we'll knock out the interview next week as well. Thanks so much to Chris. Thanks so much to all you. Support us in a fob pod. Go to Apple Podcasts where you can subscribe, rate, and review. And I'll see you at the movies. Screw you, Tully. <laughs>